Welcome to Mental Health in Minnesota podcast produced by NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Young Adult Advisory Board. This is a podcast series that centers education, empowerment, and engagement surrounding mental health within communities of color. NAMI Minnesota is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of all Minnesotans affected by mental illness. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to more episodes on the NAMI Minnesota website or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we wanted to talk about something that can be pretty sensitive and also is a really important thing to talk about, especially in this current uh, National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month or week. Um, which is suicide prevention and folks' experiences in this space. Um, Just to be able to respect people's privacy, we wanna preface this by saying that uh, folks here will be able to share as much or as little or not at all as they see fit or as they are comfortable with. And also that this episode, we will not be introducing ourselves by name just to also respect folks' privacy. I have had a number of experiences as somebody who has dealt with suicidal ideation, as somebody who has attempted suicide um, in navigating mental health spaces at the height of some of my crises. And I think this is a big topic and I think when we approach it through a multicultural lens, which is what we are here to do, it becomes even higher stakes. And um, one example that I'm thinking of, which we were talking about earlier, is just trying to navigate mental health spaces through a multicultural lens. And I remember in college, um, when I was really struggling with suicidal ideation, I was really eager to try to find a therapist. And I was really eager to try to find a therapist that I felt like I didn't have to explain aspects of my identity to. And that typically involves a therapist who's a woman of color who has a similar cultural background to me. And I was really afraid of having a therapist with some of the like ingrained notions, at least in my culture, of um, suicide being a sin. And I was really struggling to try to balance this desire to have a therapist who was also a woman of color, but to also have a therapist that I felt like had unlearned some of the things that I had grown up learning and ending up just feeling really unsafe in a lot of spaces. And I imagine I'm not the only person to have had this experience. And so I'm wondering if y'all have had similar experiences and how you've navigated that process. Um, yeah, I mean, you know this about me, but I've, <laughs> I've actually never had a therapist of color. All of my therapists have been white women. Um, and I'm very grateful for them and like the contributions, obviously, that they've made to my mental wellness. But... It would be really nice. I've always really wanted to have a therapist who is a woman of color um, and who I don't have to explain certain things to. I mean, think um, being black, like during George Floyd's summer, like living in Minneapolis and having to try to explain to like my white female therapist the experiences that I was having and the feelings that I was having and like just all of this time that was just spent trying to put things into words that I just Mm -hmm. kind of wished that she just could like get and Mm -hmm. that she tried her best to get, but you know, at the end of the day, it's just not the same. Um, So that's been something that is like really heavy on my mind. Um, 
but also like as I had um, mentioned, as I've mentioned before, like I just really struggle trying to find a therapist who is of color but is not faith-based. I like to keep those two things separate for me, my faith and my mental health journey. Um, and that has also just been a huge challenge. And so I've kind of given up, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm sure she's out there somewhere, but <laughs> I just am like, it's just not, it's not in the cards for me at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my therapist, thankfully, she is a Vietnamese second generation therapist. She is amazing. She is young. She, <laughs> like, it is everything. I'm not Vietnamese, but we're both, you know, descendants of refugees. So just that experience alone, I feel like is really important. Um, I did have a white therapist, older woman, and she she didn't hold me accountable for the things I should have been held accountable for. And just like, I I had really severe anxiety, like a deep phobia of driving. Um, And so like, I couldn't even get into a car, you know, and just anything with cars really, I had a lot of traumatic experiences in cars. Um, So it was just like this deep fear, like I can't get in. And then when I had told my therapist, who at the time was, you know, the older white woman, she was like, that's okay, we'll figure out ways around it that's fine. And I was like, no, I need you to tell me that, like, I need to get into a car, like, you know, Um, and then just like, for just like things didn't work out for us, she ended up having to change clinics. And she was like, because of this, I have to, you know, my entire caseload is is gone. So like, you can either stay with the clinic with another therapist or go somewhere else. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just go somewhere else, whatever. Um, And then I found the person that I see now and she is amazing. Like everything that I needed and I didn't know I needed it. You know what I'm saying? And then that's when I realized that I was like, shoot, there are so many like modalities of therapy and you know, and everything. And then I kind of was able to like, and then finally when it came to the driving, she was like, no, you're gonna like do this right now. Like I need you to literally like schedule with the DMV right now, you know, or whatever. Like she would really hold me accountable in like our 50 minutes we got together. But that was like so huge for me because like never in my life, no one has really ever hold, held me accountable for anything. My parents were very laissez-faire. They were like, as long as the cops are not being called on you, like you're fine. Um, <laughs> And so I, I just always was like under the radar. Like I never got in trouble, but I also never got like celebrated for anything. I was just like there, you know? And so now I'm finally having an adult like tell me like, you shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> like you need to face your fears, you know? And, but it's just been huge. You know, now I can like, I finally got my permit. I got my license, I got my car, I got my, you know, like all this stuff, you know? And it was just like literally because of her, like she single-handedly did that because as much as my parents like want me to do things, they like don't help me do it. You know what I'm yeah. saying? They're like, why don't you have this? And I'm like, well, shouldn't you be the one teaching me to do it? <laughs> so it's, I feel like she's in a way almost like kind of like older sistered me into like just adulthood. I think that in itself is a protective factor. You know, that in itself can prevent suicide. Um, but I will never forget experiences I've had where it was very obvious to me that not having a therapist of color or not having a therapist that shared the same background of me, therapist or mental health professional in general, was a risk factor for me. That like in my moments when I was at the peak of crisis, having a provider that I had to explain things to or that I had to become defensive of my cultural background towards in moments where I really didn't have capacity to do that, that like that was a dangerous thing for me. And I was telling both of you some of these examples, but I remember once 
reaching out for support and being told that if I converted religions, essentially, all of my, all of my suicidal ideation was gonna go away. Or I remember once um, talking about some of the background that was driving some of my mental illness symptoms and that was pushing me into a place of crisis and having a therapist use language of religious trauma or religious oppression when that was never language that I had used and when I don't relate to my background in that way. And feeling really jarred and feeling like I had to somehow switch out of crisis mode and switch into a mode where I had to defend my background, where I had to defend my identity, and where I ended up working in opposition to a provider that was supposed to be helping me through moments of crisis. Um, and so it's very obvious to me in those moments, without having numbers in front of me, without having statistics in front of me, just how profoundly having therapists to whom you have to explain yourself or to whom you have to become defensive of your background or your identity is in and of itself a danger. And that's not to say that people of color can only or only should be seeing providers of color. That's just to say that even when we see white providers in mental health spaces, there needs to be a level of training, there needs to be a level of cultural humility, there needs to be a level of sensitivity and education and self-awareness that goes into working with patients of color or patients of certain faith backgrounds in a way that I don't think we've streamlined and in a way that I don't think we've, we've prioritized in mental health spaces. So in terms of other services, I'm curious, um, <clears throat> all of your thoughts on, um, you know, having like a hotline or a crisis line. Has that been helpful for you in times of crisis? Have you shared that to others? Have people shared how it has been helpful or hasn't been helpful? Like, what has that been like? So I have called crisis lines in the past um, several different ones. So I'm not speaking about any specific crisis line at this moment. And generally, I think that they are a really important resource to have. And I have had some like really unfortunate experiences and I've had some really life-saving experiences with those crisis lines. And um, one of the examples that I already shared of being told that I needed to convert religions in order for my mental illness and my symptoms and my suicidal ideation to go away was on a crisis line. And I've also had an experience where a really calm, really educated, really professional and passionate individual talked me down from a ledge I never thought I would be able to get down from. And so I think what is beautiful about some of these crisis lines is that they are so accessible and I think becoming increasingly accessible as we've switched the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline from being like a 10-digit phone number into a three-digit phone number, 988, um, that is so much more accessible than in a moment of crisis having to look up the phone number for the website, just being able to, for the, for the hotline, just being able to remember 988 in the same way that we remember and are taught and ingrained to remember 911 is, I think, going to be huge and I think that's going to be life-saving. And some of the experiences I've had personally and some of the experiences I've heard from other people are experiences where there wasn't necessarily enough training, there wasn't necessarily enough cultural specific training that went into staffing the hotlines. Um, and I think it's true at the level of therapists and psychiatrists and at the level of hotlines um, that that can be really dangerous again. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really, um, 
I just don't feel as versed to speak on that particular subject. I've never actually called a hotline or a warm line. I, um, part of how my anxiety manifests is such that I don't really like calling people I know, let alone people that I don't know. Um, and when I'm like in those moments where I'm like at my lowest, like the absolute last thing that I want to do is pick up the phone and call a stranger, even if it's for help. Um, I just like, that's just not really ever been a, a route that I've taken. I'm happy to know about like, like to learn about you guys' experience though, because I do definitely like, sometimes I see, you know, like see a post on Instagram or whatever. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, like it's this month or that month or whatever, like share this hotline. And, you know, I always like pass them along and I'm like, I'm never going to call this number, but hopefully it helps somebody. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do get like curious about it. Cause I'm always like, or and is it just me? Am I the only one who gets this stressed out about calling people? Like, is everybody else like, no, I need help, so I'm going to call this number, as opposed to just sitting there and being like, I need help, so I'm going to sit in my room and cry about it. Like, mm-hmm. um, But yeah, nope, never call the hotline. Mm-hmm. So... Um yeah, so you can call, text, or chat the line. Um, so I've never called either, um, but I've chatted them like on a laptop, um, and it was probably during my undergrad years. Um, but I, I think I struggled to put things into words. I think was was my issue because the modality of communication is like limited. You know, like you, you know, you can only just chat, or you can only just text, or you can only just call, or you know, whatever. Um, and at that time, it's when you are in a crisis, like it's hard to form words and like make sense of what's happening. Um, and I would kind of be on and off my laptop. And so if you're not on, if you're not active for X amount of minutes, you're kicked off and you have to, you have to wait in line for another one. Um, so it's like, it goes to show the need for it because I, like, it'll be like, there's 20 people in front of you, you know, or whatever. And there's 200 crisis centers across the country. So like if the one that I'm, locally connected to as 20 people in front of me, like I can only imagine in more like populated areas, you know, or whatever. But um, I think it has been difficult to like, I don't even have the words to know what I need, you know? And I think that's the hard thing is, at least for me, like I truly don't know what to tell you of what I need. I just know I need something or I know that I don't have something, but like I, you know, just like, I think first you need to build the language of like your own emotions, which I feel like, you know, some families really don't have like that emotional vocabulary, you know, um, and that was very true for me of just like, I honestly don't know if I'm sad. Like, I genuinely don't know. I feel things in my body, but like my brain doesn't know how to interpret that. Um, and then taking our emotions, I don't know what I need from that. Like, you know, it's like, do I need someone to be with me or do I need distance? Do I need space? Do I, you know, like, I just, I truly didn't know. So I actually really like hated talking to people because they'd be like, what do you need? How can I support you? And I would get so frustrated at them because like, I do not know, just read my mind, you know, like, but it's, it's taken me a long time to be like, oh, I do need to tell people. Like, I I do need to communicate my feelings. Like I had that, you could all just read my mind. But um, I feel like, it has been hard, but I know that 988 is becoming more accessible. And now they're adding a line for like hard of hearing and deaf folks to use 988, but. Something that you said really resonated too when you were talking about trying to put things into words. And I just feel like when I'm really struggling, I don't really know what is gonna make me feel better, but I know what's gonna make me feel worse. Mm. 
And unfortunately, like sometimes I feel like I just like almost set myself up for failure where there's like certain people in my life that I want, like, you know, like my mom or like certain community members and like people who love me. And like, that's who I like really want to help me feel better. But like, they just don't have the language to do that. And so mm-hmm. I like go and I like pour my heart out and then they make me feel worse and then I walk away and I'm like and I knew they were gonna do that but I like (laughs) just like expected kind of like different results but you know it's like not their fault like they just don't have the language to help me but Mm -hmm. just like that was like just I really resonated with that where I'm like I don't really know I don't know what I need like Mm -hmm. I know what I don't need but I know (laughs) what I, I don't know what I need and as a child of immigrants where I feel like culturally, linguistically, the language and the concepts around mental health or mental illness or suicide are different between me and my parents and my grandparents. Sometimes being able to communicate, being able Mm. to find the language to talk about how you're feeling, to talk about what you're experiencing is really hard. It almost feels, even if my parents speak the same language as me, which is English, their background, their upbringing is so culturally different than mine as somebody who grew up here that it almost feels like I'm having to translate. And Mm. I can't always do that, especially in moments of crisis. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a conversation that we've had in this multicultural space for quite some time now, is the way that we communicate intergenerationally as almost its own form of translation. And so I agree with you that it would be a really intense burden to place on resources to be able to cater to all of the cultural or individual needs that we have and the danger of not having enough of those resources is, it, it can be really dangerous. And that's not to say that a resource has to be perfect. It's just to say that they need to put in the effort. And uh, it's been a while since I've used those resources. So I'm not sure what that looks like now. I think the last time I called 988, none of those things were in place, mm. if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And it's great to hear that they are. And I think those are the kinds of those are the kinds of efforts, those are the kind of changes that I could really see saving lives. There was something that I also wanted to talk about of, um, I remember in a moment of crisis, walking across a bridge and seeing signs that were like, you are not alone, call this crisis line. And I remember getting really frustrated as somebody who at that point had called crisis lines many times, who had been through therapy, who had taken medications, and feeling like, what what more Mm -hmm. is there? And feeling like um, those resources didn't go far enough, and they were really meant for people for whom these feelings, the suicidal ideation, was brand new, and not for people for whom it was chronic. And I do sort of wonder if y'all feel like resources go far enough or go too far, or if there are things that you've seen put in place for suicide prevention that seem really effective or that seem really ineffective. I feel like by the time you get to the signs on the bridge, at that point, like for lack of a better term, that's kind of a Hail Mary. Like that's like the final Mm -hmm. frontier, Mm -hmm. the last ditch attempt, like, and you're here now. And we can't have someone monitoring this bridge 24-7, but, like, we know what happens here. So, Mm. you know, here's the sign, here's the number, like, please, please, please don't do this. Um, But I definitely agree with you that some of those 
numbers can be a little bit of like a, okay, well then what's next, right? Because like, even if it gets me through today, I still have to do this tomorrow. Mm. Um, it's why I'm always hesitant about like lines, like, you mm. know, like better help and things like that, that have come up where I'm like, well, I think I actually probably need to like see someone consistently mm-hmm. and like accredited and for a very long time. <laughs> um, I don't actually think I need just like an individual, like emergency number. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is the tricky part mm-hmm. is for me, it always feels like so much of what we call quote unquote suicide prevention ends up being reactive and not actually mm-hmm. preventative. I felt mm-hmm. this a lot when I worked as a counselor mm-hmm. um, in high schools. I would just watch kids get worse and worse and worse. But the list of kids who needed help would just get longer and longer and longer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess it's like you put out the fire that's burning first, right? But I'm like, okay, but there is someone in the house behind us, like pouring gasoline everywhere and Mm -hmm. holding matches, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's like, so we're just gonna let that happen and then try to intervene. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, the resources were just spread so thin that like all we had was reactive capabilities, um, which was really unfortunate. There are a couple of things that you said that made me think of other things. (laughs) And so (laughs) I hope that this is coherent, but um, the analogy that you used of being in a burning house and there are still gasoline and there are still matches. My other question is who has access to a bucket of water? And if you call a number, the next step is usually like, all right, let me refer you to local therapists in your area once I've talked you down from this ledge. Who has financial access? Whose insurance is covering therapy? Who lives in an area where there are even therapists within a 30 mile radius? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who has access to the resources that are inevitably gonna be the result of calling a, calling a hotline, for example? And that's a conversation that we should be having, I think, especially in multicultural communities where we know that those disparities exist. And so in the analogy that you put out, it's like, who has the bucket of water? The bucket being money, time, insurance coverage, Mm -hmm. access to transportation. Mm -hmm. Who has those things? Or even capacity. I mean, for some people, just that initial Mm -hmm. crisis call is so hard. So hard. And to then be told, and now here are 50 other numbers you can cold call, and hopefully one of them can give you long-term help. Like, right. I'll never forget when I was like waitlisted for a therapist and then the day before the appointment she had to cancel mm-hmm. because she had like something with like picking up her kids or whatever, like the timeline changed or whatever. Sure. Um, and she was like, and I can no longer see you at this time, but here's a list of providers that I know that you can call. And she gave me a list of like 15 phone numbers. And I was like, I'm never going to do that. Do you (laughs) know how many months it took me to build up the strength to call you? And now you want me to cold call just random numbers and names on a piece of paper? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, you just, it was like, you may as well have just like left me out to dry. And it's not her fault. Like, what is she supposed to do? You know, like walk me through the process and like. I guess it's the same thing, right, for these, like, crisis lines. Like, they only have so many resources and they can only do so much. But it does sometimes just feel like it's, like, it took everything that I had just to get to this point. And now you're telling me that I have to, like, go another mile. Mm -hmm. But I don't have another mile. Like, I saved up all my energy for this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I think it also gets even harder when your primary or native language is not English, you know, and just like you, you, you literally don't have the words for it, you know. And so like I see my mom with this with like my younger sister's kind of been in and out of hospitalization and just like I would have to do all the calling, which I do not mind because I know my mom does not have like the vocabulary or the ability to like comprehend what they're even saying just because there's so much like medical jargon and you know, whatever. But I would call, but then I couldn't make the call because I'm not my sister's legal guardian. So like, you know, it was just, I was, I was like, I, my mom literally cannot call you. Like she can call you, but you're not gonna understand her and she's not gonna understand you. Like, you know, like this is, this is, this is the best we've got. So like, you're just gonna have to be flexible or whatever. Like I know it's a confidentiality thing, whatever. Like my mom can sign anything, like email it to her, whatever. But like, I have to be the one you talk with. Yeah. Because otherwise my sister's not going to follow her treatment plan because my mom's not going to know what it is, you know, or whatever, or just, you know, so just even like the language barrier of like, I don't even know what these words are and like, I don't even know what hospitalization, you know, and just things like that, you know, or, or just like things that I think a lot of like immigrant and refugee communities hear about like mental illness in, in you know, in the U.S. or like hospitals in the U.S. or medication, you know, like all of those things are especially really foreign to them. So like, of course, they're not going to trust, you know, these sources. Which can be really tricky when you're young. I mean, my parents were staunchly opposed to mm. me being on any type of medication when I was in high school. And to my therapist's credit, like she was not one of those therapists that just like, you know, throws Lexapro at you. like. Mm -hmm. We went through many, many sessions of just like straight therapy before she was like, okay, like I think you might also need additional, an additional level of support on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, and like I was open to trying that, but my parents very much were not. And it is very cultural, like mm -hmm. I think in my community to not, not believe in medication, to not even really believe in therapy, like, mm -hmm. I don't think my parents would have ever put me in therapy if my primary care provider, who I've had pretty much my whole life, wasn't like, I actually, no, I agree with her. Like, I think she mm. needs to see a professional. Um, and it just, like, sucked because I was a teenager, you know, and so I was like, I have, like, my own brain, and I know that I need help, but I can't communicate that to my mom and my dad because they're just telling me that I need Jesus. And I also can't get help without them legally signing off on it. Mm -hmm. Even when I went to university, I was 17. So I couldn't even see a counselor on campus without, they had to call my parents before each appointment and be like, is it okay that she's here right now? Mm -hmm. Which is like, first of all, a little bit humiliating and just like miserable and makes me not want to go at all. But like, then it's so hard when you have that like cultural barrier and being, you know, just like, and a completely different mindset. Mm. Um, and you want help, but you can't get it. I also want to talk about, if it's okay with folks, another barrier that I think exists to crisis resources, which in a lot of rooms is the elephant. Um, but I think it deserves talking about, which is what are people afraid of when they call crisis lines? And I know a lot of folks are afraid of having the police sent to their house. And I think that that is really, really valid. And it's something that we know is an outcome in a lot of crisis calls. And not a lot. Again, I don't have statistics. But it's something that we know is possible, right? That if a crisis line deems you to be acutely at risk to yourself or somebody else, oftentimes this, the next step will be to call law enforcement. And... 
there are so many factors that go into the implications of that, especially in multicultural communities where maybe communicating with law enforcement officers who have weapons is dangerous. Maybe there isn't a common language. Maybe um, an individual in crisis is acutely experiencing, for example, psychosis or is um, activated or is of elevated mood. Any of those things can be true and that can pose a danger. And I'm looking right now at resources that we have and I've seen resources in some clinics about what to expect when you call the police for a mental health emergency. And those resources are great and those resources are helpful. And I think we need to do a better job of talking about what that looks like, particularly in communities of color and why and how that serves as a barrier at times to accessing mental health and crisis resources. And there are lots of reasons why folks in communities of color should and often do have reservations around being involved with law enforcement. And I think the murder of George Floyd is one of many, many examples of that. And I don't know that we talk about that enough in crisis resource spaces. I actually saw a post recently um, that someone had shared in honor of this month and it was just a compiled list of warm lines that mm -hmm. don't call the police. Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was really interesting and I was like, you know, going through it and I was like, this is a really, really helpful resource. Mm -hmm. um, but then I was like, and the flip side of that, right, is that like a lot of these lines are not necessarily like beholden to like any sort of higher standard of like just any sort of like standardization outside of what they themselves have created, which does not by any means mean that like I am against them or that they're bad. Like I think they're incredible resources. Um, but I do see also how it makes it really hard for um, organize, like mental health organizations that do have the like funding and support or like government backing to like be disseminating resources to back those lines because they don't have really any sort of like insider control into like how they're structured, um, which again, I'm not saying is a bad thing, um, but I definitely sometimes I like think about where that line is um, in terms of like community resources, but then also making sure that we're having people who like have the education and background to make sure that we're not like accidentally doing more harm or that we're not like, you know, avoiding things because they're uncomfortable, but like we have to do them. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of folks think that 911 is the catch all, you know, like for anything, any emergency, regardless of what it is, it's like 911. And I think like I had been talking to a person um, who had requested a class from NAMI and I was like, I always like to do a call just to see like why, because the class is the intersection of race and trauma. And so I'm like, that class is really loaded and it's predominantly for like only multicultural communities. So you know, what's your audience, whatever. And she was like, I work at an older folks home with um, either adults with disabilities or those, or like older adults. And, you know, we were 15 minutes late to a meeting with one of our residents and she thought that was an opportunity to call 911 on us because we were like neglecting her. And so cops came, you know, and whatever. And she was like, I'm, I'm a black woman. I've had a lot of terrible experiences with police. Like it was very traumatic for me. Um, I couldn't even go out there to tell the police what the situation was. I had one of my colleagues do it. And she was like, 
you know, a lot of folks only know of 911. And for an inconvenience, they think it's okay to call 911. You know, and so I think the warm lines are huge, but I also notice a lot of them like aren't available 24/7. Like they're kind of like those odd hours after work or like kind of a weird, you know, and so like I think a lot of it is funding with those warm lines. Um but it can just be really hard when I feel like so many people only know 911, you know? And even with 988, it's like, no, well, I'm not in a crisis. You know, how do I get to that point, you know? Yeah, I wish that they were more like widely disseminated and funded. Mm -hmm. um, I just like, I don't know what like the logistics of that would be for something that's like that serious and like a resource that's that vital. Um, because I think it's super cool that they exist. And I feel like they tend to usually have more options in terms of like diverse people on the other end of the line and like mm -hmm. people with training right outside of that, like calling the police or whatever and like really keyed into like community needs in a way that mm -hmm. other hotlines usually aren't, although it sounds like I guess are trying to become, which is really cool. I think this transitions a little bit into something that you were talking about, which is um, reactive versus preventative services when we talk about suicide prevention, which is the name, suicide prevention, and sometimes we do have to manage the acute crises. But I think a warm line versus a crisis line, I think a warm line is a really good example of like a preventive resource. Preventative, preventive, but I think a warm line is a good example of something that I would consider prevent slash preventative and I'm wondering what other preventive slash preventative resources <laughs> y'all have seen um, or would like to see mm -hmm. I think one that I think of right away is United Way they have um, a 211 number also three digits super easy to remember and it connects you to social services mm. so it's like employment housing eviction you know food kind of the more basic needs um they they provide <laughs> they provide um like services in that way which i think is really helpful and i would even say like if you are struggling with you know because like people need to have food and shelter you know what i'm saying like those are even more risk factors for people feeling uh, or having like suicidal ideation so even just having those basic needs is so important so i would just plug like united way which is like i think across the state of minnesota and just like getting literally whatever your needs are that you need right now you know well and i feel like in a lot of ways and by the way i did just google it and preventative and preventive are can they can be used interchangeably they are oh both words there we go. and they mean the same thing <laughs> um, <laughs> how validating but i do feel like that is kind of the crux of the issue right is when we talk about suicide prevention we are usually talking about acute immediate people who are actively in crisis and we're like how do we make this not happen right now mm -hmm. um but as you have alluded or like stated very clearly actually prevention starts way before that and particularly in communities of color um, I think a lot of the things that are key risk factors tend to be heightened in those communities because there tends to be like you just see a lot more people who are you know like there's just more housing inequity and you know like food like you know, we're, we're food deserts usually, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. communities of color. Mm -hmm. And 
that's a huge problem. Um, and so I think that's also just where it gets kind of tricky is because it's like, well, if we really want to talk about like being proactive about people's mental health, mm. then we need to start having a conversation about like all of these really uncomfy risk factors that like nobody wants to address. Like we yeah. would like to believe it's just as simple as like, oh, sometimes people are sad. And then you just have to remind them that like things are going to get better. But the reality is like, well, sometimes people like can't afford to feed themselves or are facing systemic oppression or you know x y and z and like those things don't feel like they're getting better actually mm -hmm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. we're just going to keep having the same conversation over and over and over again mm -hmm. i'm going to ask a question <laughs> that my friend always asks whenever we have a serious conversation which is what are you hesitating to say what is left to be said what do you really mm. want to make sure gets heard before we wrap up today's podcast because we've covered a lot of really heavy things and mm. i want to leave space for reflection i want to leave space for feedback um and i want to leave space for like i don't know like sharing emotions or feelings i don't know i know for hennepin county and i think for ramsey county there are cope lines mm -hmm. that are through the county that do not that are separate from like crisis lines um like separate from 988 um there is of course 988 mm -hmm. as you talked about there's 211 mm -hmm. um and if you are a person who I think a big resource that we don't talk about or haven't talked about yet is just like loved ones and friends and family. And if all else fails or if you don't have numbers accessible to you, I, I feel like the best thing to do is always reach out to somebody that you feel like will support you through a really hard time or through a crisis mm -hmm. while you can be transitioned to and receive access to other resources that are more professionally equipped to help. All right, this was a heavy topic. For anyone who's listening, thank you. Please feel free to access the services that you need always. The Mental Health Minnesota Warm Line is a safe and secure phone line for people working on their recovery. The warm line is answered by knowledgeable, compassionate, caring, and professionally trained staff of peer support specialists who have first-hand, personal experience dealing with a psychiatric diagnosis. The Minnesota warm line is completely confidential and non-judgmental. You can call them at 651-288-0400 or text SUPPORT to 85511. Wellness in the Woods also offers a warm line, which can be reached by calling 844-739-6369. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and con confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress. It is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can call or text the number 988, otherwise you can chat them at 988lifeline.org. Option 1 is the Veterans Line, Option 2 is the Spanish Line, and Option 3 is the LGBTQ plus Youth Network. Thank you. <laughs>